Well, this is the season of uh, Lent. Lent is simply an anglicized version of an old Latin word that simply means lengthening. You can almost hear lengthening in Lent. And really, uh, the only reason that Lent is chosen to mark this 40 to 47-day space before uh, our Lord's passion and resurrection is because it was in this time of year that the days begin to lengthen. lengthen. And as the days get longer, um, we notice that. And there were some, some of the sages, some of the mystics talked about not only are the days getting longer, but through this process of journeying toward the cross, we are elongating our souls. We're extending our hearts toward God. But that's really where the idea of Lent came from, or the word Lent actually came from in popular use. The season of Lent, though, that and I say 40 to 47 days before Easter because the 40 days that we actually spend in reflection, a lot of people spend in fasting or giving something up or adding something to their life, those 40 days are the weekdays plus Saturday minus Sunday. The Sundays through the season of Lent are called Little Easter's. And so whatever it is that you're fasting from or whatever it is that you're adding to your life during the season of Lent, on Easter you, you, you get to go eat fried food or sugar or drink Coca-Cola or whatever it is that you're doing in that season. Specifically in the early church, probably within the first three to four centuries, I, I don't want to do too much of a history lesson, but I think this is interesting. This block of time that was set aside before Easter for reflection um, grew out of simply this general sense that the idea of our Lord's crucifixion, His burial, His resurrection, those ideas are absolutely too profound simply to stumble upon them and for one or two days reflect on them. It's very similar to the idea of Advent. We begin ahead of Christmas, ahead of the nativity to reflect on those things and the coming of those things, the coming of our Lord. Uh, the same with Lent. There's just too much in this thing we call the gospel, the life, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus to be reflected on in just a short space of time. Now, obviously, we're supposed to be reflecting on it all year long, but we also know the importance of anniversaries, holy days, special days, uh, chronological sacraments that really bring our focus in a specific transformative way to an idea. So the church said this is just too big of an idea just to stumble upon for a day or two, so let's take a space of time. But maybe even more than that, specifically, as the Roman Empire began to Christianize, over a 150 to 200-year period gradually, and then pretty cataclysmically, um, the Roman Empire moved from persecution of religions, aberrant religions like the Christian church, to literally conscripting Christianity, and Christianity became the religion of the empire. And we didn't really know what to do with that. We did several things. As a matter of fact, the monastic movement of severe asceticism, and when I say the monastics, the people who kind of pulled off into the desert, holy people who pulled off into a private space to dedicate their lives to severe self-denial and continual prayer. Monasticism really began to reach a fevered pitch in the era when the Roman Empire stopped persecuting us. Why would that be? We had, through our martyrdom and suffering, we had, we had found a sense of holiness. 
and transformation and experience with the divine that came only through suffering. And we didn't know what to do with this absence of externalized suffering. So if it's not going to be the empire causing us to suffer and feel pain, we will inflict pain upon ourselves. So we moved into a time where not only were the monastics particularly ascetic and self-denying, but pervading even the laity of the church, there began to be this real emphasis on fasting, prayer, um, self-denial, because through suffering we believe there was a connection to the divine. One other thing that we noticed as the Christian church was conscripted into the empire, and you began to get kind of this mix of empire and Christianity that ended up yielding Christendom, uh, some of the things that we really don't like about religious structure, this religious structure we call Christianity. But as they were melding, one of the things that began to become clear was now not only was it not a disadvantage to be a Christian or a follower of this man named Jesus, now uh, it was an advantage in the empire to be a Christian. And in certain parts of the empire, this was not universal certainly, but in certain parts of the empire, uh, there was extreme pressure upon you. If you were not a Christian, you wouldn't suffer physical persecution necessarily, but you would suffer uh, social subjugation and even financial subjugation. So you've got to put yourself in the minds of those, uh, of those early church fathers and leaders. Christianity was once a disadvantage, now it's an advantage. And as it became an advantage, we began to see massive amounts of people converting into Christianity. It almost, in many parts of the empire in the 4th, 5th, and 6th century, became a voter registration card or a, a button that says, I voted to be a Christian. And with that, there was just a sense that many of these conversions were shallow conversions and not sincere. And this is coming out of hundreds of years following a crucified Lord and many of our people also being crucified. Now it seemed that that this call to discipleship, this call to take up a cross. You remember Jesus said, can you drink the cup that I drink from? Can you be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? You want to talk about baptism. Baptism wasn't something you swan-dived into. Baptism wasn't something that you went into lightly. Jesus said, can you be baptized with my baptism? The baptism of Jesus is not just an immersion or a sprinkling of water. That's simply a sacrament that indicates that you're being immersed into his life. And Jesus said that in his own Lenten journey as he began to set his face toward Jerusalem to go. Can you, he looked to his disciples and said, can you really drink this cup? This is the moment when he was saying, sit down and count the cost and see whether you have sufficient to finish. Are you really willing to live this life? And the church recognized that there were a lot of people who were not approaching baptism that way. They were getting, again, their voter registration card instead of their cross. And so the church said, if you want to be baptized, if you want to enter in into this assembly of crucified, resurrected people, then we want you to take a time, a season, and we want you to truly, genuinely reflect on this. And that became the season of Lent. And so all of the, or, all of the uh, people who wanted to be baptized literally would have to wait through the year until the season of Lent, and then they would go through a time of fasting, reflection, and learning, and at the end of the 40 days, on Easter, people would be mass baptized. So that's where the season of Lent came from.
Over the last 15 to 16 centuries, it's been utilized for many things. I always, for myself, believe the season of Lent is just a time to open my heart and reflect again on who is Jesus, what did His life mean, what did His death mean. Of particular note to me has been the death of Jesus in recent years. What did His death mean? What did His burial mean? The burial is kind of that innocuous part of the gospel that so many of us look over, and yet I think there's profound meaning there because when Paul said we have a gospel, we have good news, he said the gospel is chiefly this, that Christ lived, died, was buried, and resurrected. And the death and the resurrection are so overwhelming and stand out so clearly, but um, Paul said there's also good news that he was buried. The season of Lent is the season that we move through these 40 days reflectively contemplating this centerpiece of the faith we call Christian, the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Furthermore, Paul said the, the gospel is not just that Christ died, was buried, was resurrected. He said the good news was he died, he was buried, he was resurrected, and then he was seen. We often talk about the death, burial, and resurrection, but it's really the life, death, burial, resurrection, and the seenness of Jesus. It was good news that he was seen, not just resurrected. So as we move through these next few weeks, I just want to spend a little time before we sing together and take the Lord's Supper together. I just want to take a little time to bring our attention to this life, this solitary, profound life named Jesus, to bring back our attention to His death, to spend some time, maybe a week or so, on His burial, and then ultimately to celebrate the resurrection on Easter with perhaps a more full, a more robust meaning than we've experienced before. Who was Jesus? I've made a statement the last few months here, probably multiple times, that as I, every time I make the statement, um, it settles more deeply into my own soul, and that is, as it relates to the person of Jesus and who He was and who He is, the statement sounds something like this, I am believing more and more and more that Jesus was not the grand exception but Jesus was the gracious rule. Now, that's one of those phrases that's fancy enough and have, has enough alliteration in it that I can say it and it can sound nice, but unless we really stop and think about what it means, I, I think we can miss the point entirely. Jesus was the grand… Jesus was not the grand exception. What do I mean by Jesus was not the grand exception? I think in the early days of the Christian church, there was a definitive wrestling with this idea of who Jesus was. It, was. it was our chief orthodox problem. It was our chief problem as it related to the development of our doctrine, the tenets of our faith, our dogma, our belief system. Who was Jesus? Was He God or was He man? You might be interested to note that 
the issue of whether or not Jesus was truly human was the bigger issue in the second century of the church. There was probably a 150-year space in the history of the church that it was more readily believed that Jesus was God than Jesus was a man. There were a lot of sects like the Docetics. Doceticism was this belief that Jesus was just an apparition, that God, and this was coming probably not out, it, was, it wasn't coming at all out of our Hebrew base. It was probably coming out of uh, Grecian thought, Greek thought, Platonic dualism in particular. There was a prevailing thought in the Mediterranean world that the really good stuff was the invisible and the really bad stuff was the physical. And this idea that we know as Plato's idea of dualism, form and substance, permeated the Christian church. There are often zeitgeist or worldviews, philosophies um, in, in the world that whether we know it or not, they enculturate us, they permeate us at a cellular level, and they end up impacting everything we do all the way down to our religion. That's why you can look back at the history of the Christian faith and based on chronology and geography, you can see a lot of different iterations of Christianity. And if you really sociologically studied these iterations of Christianity, you can discern the difference between the doctrine and make it extremely commensurate with the difference of the society's form of government, the society's particular worldview, societal Views, worldviews, zeitgeist have a way of permeating our theology. I, I think a lot of our Christian brothers and sisters, as the church is globalized and as we've, as we've moved to a broader church with access to one another, I think a lot of us are learning that so much of Western Christianity is colonialism. Um, it's modeled after our forms of government. Um, we've turned God into the ultimate capitalist. And if you go into other parts of the world, even Marxist, socialist parts of the world that I know differ with us greatly ideologically, you'll find those ideas permeating their Christianity. And you say, well, how could socialism ever permeate Christianity? Oh, I don't know. Maybe Acts, the second chapter, when the Holy Spirit fell, they had all things common. And they laid every bit of their money at the apostles' feet, and the apostles divided it accordingly so nobody had a lot and nobody had a little. I don't know. No, I'm not voting for Bernie Sanders, and, but I like Bernie, and I think the more global we become, the more that we should open our heart and listen for the impact of culture, government, worldviews on our theology. In the early days of the Christian church, Platonic dualism, Grecian thought, even Pauline theology, I often read Paul, and I feel like Paul was far more deeply influenced by Greek thought than he was Hebrew thought. And he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. And I understand that because it was a prevailing worldview that he was steeped in, that he was raised in. And his particular association with the Hebrew religion became quite painful for him, frankly. So I, I get where Paul's coming from. But Platonic dualism so seeped into the church that there were large groups of the Christian church that said Jesus couldn't possibly be human because God would not sully God's self. God would not dirty God's self with something corporeal or material or fleshly. Puritanism, 17th century Bible translations, 
carried some of that over out of the Renaissance and the revol uh, this revolution of Greek thought 15, 1600 years later. The church in the 16th and 17th century, especially the Puritan folk, great influence upon King James' translation of Scripture, um, carried this idea forward. And this Greek word, sarx, that means sin nature, it's a very ethereal thing, a mystical thing embedded deep inside of our souls. It was translated in, by the 17th century church. Sarx was translated flesh. And so I grew up in a puritanical world that really carried over this idea of platonic dualism, and I knew the flesh was the bad thing, right? We're always battling the flesh. And, and, and the flesh became this, and so I, I knew this was bad, and it led to a lot of detachment for me, a lot of intellectualizing, staying in my head because the body was bad. Flesh, sexuality, the body, so much shame carried there. As a little boy, my great-grandmother, God rest her soul, a precious woman, but very puritanical, Pentecostal pastor's wife. I remember as a little boy when my brother and I, she's my great-grandmother, when we were four and five years old, we would have to bathe at her house in either our underwear or gym shorts. And I remember as a little boy saying, why have we got to wear gym shorts, grandmother? And she says, well, you've got to stay covered. And I, but you're our grandmother, our great-grandmother, for crying out loud. And ideas seep into our bodies. And little boys realize there must be something wrong with all this if even my great-grandmother can't see it. It's flesh. And the flesh is the enemy. No. Sarks is our problem. And Buck, that's sin nature. That's not this. This is the thing that God drew from the dust of the earth and stood back and said, good. They were naked and not ashamed. Naked. Who told you that you were naked? Some of the early church fathers said when he drew them out in their nakedness and he unveiled them, took their fig leaves off, some of the early church fathers note that when he made them skins, that the Scripture doesn't say that he killed an animal, although that's intimated. It really doesn't say that he killed an animal and it doesn't say that he skinned an animal. It just says he made them skins. Some of the early church fathers wrestling with the text, doing good midrash with creative imagination, said that what he made them was new skin. He made them their own new skin. He took them and that physical visage that was laced with shame, and in grace he removed it and he gave them a new skin, a skin that could be exposed to air and exposed to the intimacy of Adam and Eve's life together, exposed to the intimacy of nakedness in the presence of God, and their new skin did not have those pain-destroyed nerve endings that were saturated with shame. But many in the early church didn't understand this, and they said God couldn't possibly be human we finally did ascertain that indeed Jesus was a fully human being. 
But while we acquiesced on that point that Jesus was indeed fully human, we didn't fully resolve the point because we sublimated the idea and diverted our attention by spending all of our time focused on the idea that Jesus was God. We took Jesus and we elevated Him, and out of a strict relationship with the idea of monotheism, Christianity spent the next three to four hundred years in battles of orthodoxy, people with levels of academic erudition, knowledge of five and six and seven languages, people who had devoted themselves to the academic study of Scripture their entire lives. They cordoned themselves off and they led our church, they led us through eight or nine councils over hundreds of years councils that were so far removed from us, the laity, where we lived and how we thought, and they wrestled with how we could truly be monotheistic, and yet God could be a father, and God could be a son, and God could be a Holy Spirit. We knew in reading the early accounts of Jesus' life that there were three somethings, but we could not settle our mind that there were three gods. We were strict monotheist. And, and how do you take monotheism and bend it into this formula of threeness? I'll tell you how you do it. You do it very carefully. And you do it over the course of hundreds of years with language like homoousius and co-substantial and co-existent and co-equal and pre-existence, you formulate complex ideas and build specific complex religious words. And that's exactly what we did, and we finally recognized that there was a trinity and that this person that came in the fleshly body of Jesus had actually been there hidden throughout the course of human history, even the course of God's relationship, not only had this second person in the Trinity been hidden, but a third person, even more mysterious, a Holy Spirit, perhaps even feminine in nature, because the Holy Spirit, somehow the Hebrews connected to this idea of Sophia, the feminine idea of the wisdom, the nature of God that reflects itself in wisdom. And so we have this third person, and the church just wrestled and wrestled and wrestled. And when we fought, because some people, like the people that I came from, became modalist in their idea, and they didn't believe that there were three co-equal persons, but they believed that one person, God, manifested God's self in multiple iterations. And some modalists believed that God did that sequentially. God was Father, and then God was Son, and then God was Holy Spirit. And then some modalists said that God did it contemporaneously and that, like me, I'm Stan Jr.'s baseball coach and his dad and his pastor. It's one person filling three roles. And, and we had to start talking about eggs and a yolk and a white and a shell, and we had to talk about water, how it could be ice or steam or fluid. And we just talked ourselves into confusement, the old preacher said. All because we were wrestling with who was Jesus. And finally, as we had Jesus fully divine, 
fully human with a nod, a tacit nod, but fully divine, we finally place Jesus in a position that it seems Jesus himself, as I read the text of his life, Jesus himself never requested or expected from us. We finally move Jesus to a place of veneration and worship where he was lifted above us as some ideal that we should perhaps ever shoot for, but yet an ideal that was so vastly beyond us that we would never possibly achieve. And it just seems that it became easier for us to venerate Jesus as opposed to imitating Jesus. And yet as we go back and we reflect on his life, we find nowhere in the course of the text that Jesus ever asked anybody to genuflect. Drew, he never asked anybody to worship him. He never asked anybody to venerate him. But Jesus came into this world and he accessed something that by his estimation was accessible to all of us. Because he left this world saying, whoever believes in me, greater works than I've done, you'll do. He left this world saying, I've got to go away. You've got to let me go. But one of, the, one of the easiest things to do with a superlative life is to worship that life. One of the easiest things to do with a life like Jesus is to exceptionalize that life and to make that life so grand and so good and so vastly beyond anything I could ever be that it's almost a safety net for me, almost a self-protective action for me just to worship him, build him a statue, put him on a, put him on a necklace, put him on a wall, put his name elevate his name to a point that my only responsibility is to sing songs, to raise hands, to lift my heart, and to tell him how wonderful he is and how we could never possibly be that. And yet that doesn't seem to be what Jesus was saying at all. Jesus came into this world and access something. He took an inner journey and he found the kingdom of God. And he turned to all of us and began to say again and again and again and again the thing that he said more than any other thing, and that is follow me. Walk this way. Drink this cup. Live this life. Take this road, be baptized with this baptism. The Apostle Paul reflected back on Jesus, our earliest eminent theologian reflected back on Jesus. And in the eighth chapter of Romans, the Apostle Paul said, God has a plan for this world. This world is a Christ-making world. This universe is a soul-making place. And Paul said, I just want you to know that all things work together for good. 
Somehow in the grand scheme, the moral arc of this universe is bending toward a redemption for all things. That's an astonishing statement, are working together for good. And Paul said that he literally is working with the good and the bad raw material that the universe gives him. And he is bending this universe to an ultimate redemption that Paul said even now the world is groaning for. And that redemption is the revelation of the sons and daughters of God. Not the creation of the sons and the daughters of God, but the revelation of the sons and daughters of God. That very human moment that the prodigal moved through when he finally realized he was not a slave, he was a son. And even the elder brother in the story finally realized he was a son, not a slave. This revelation of the sons and daughters of God, Paul said, for those whom he foreknew, which is all of us, he did predestine them. Predestination is not a predestination. Divine predestination, by my estimation, is not a predestination of micromanagement where God has fixed everything, set the game up, and it's just going to play out the way that God wants it to play out. This is a predestination of quality. God made ex nihilo, out of nothing. God made out of the substance of God. And so everything that has been made has come out of the substance of God, and it is that quality of God's substance that God is depending on. God doesn't have to flex God's muscles. It's not about micromanagement. It's not about scrutinous hyper-control. But God can look at the universe and know that in spite of the struggle, there is a bend toward redemption because everything came out of me and everything will come back to me. No matter how many cycles this universe has to go through, King stood 40 years ago and rallied the troops around that idea that no matter how dark it is and how imperceptible that slant is, this is bending toward the good. That's why Julian of Norwich, the saint, said, and I know this, that sin is necessary. And both the fall and the redemption from the fall, both the blessing of God, and all manner of things shall be well, all manner of things shall be well. And again I say, all manner of things shall be well. Because he is predestined not through micromanagement, but through the quality of his substance, through the quality of her substance, through the quality of God's substance. God has predestined that we would be conformed to the image of Jesus. Not fractionally, not in part, but we would be conformed to the image of Jesus. And I say that as I look at my 17-year-old son, and he looks like me. And I get it. He is not me, but my genetics are in him, and he looks more like me every day. And my mom tells me that if she has me, she'll still have our, your pop one day because we're of the same blood and the same essence. And I'm not better than you, and I don't want you worshiping me. I want you watching and growing into the fullness of the life that I'm growing into, that my dad's growing into, the fullness of the ark of holiness that's going to end us up conformed into the image of Jesus. That Paul said, he might be the firstborn 
of many brothers and sisters. We so elevated Jesus to co-equality with the Father, which is fine with me. I'm taking no umbrage with the councils. I'm just saying all of the academic talk diverted us from the real issue of Jesus. He didn't come along and say, follow me. He didn't come along and call himself a dogma, a doctrine, or a tenet to be believed. He never said anything about co-substantiation, co-equality, and coexistence. He never talked about this stuff. He just looked at simple people like us and said, live this life. Life. Walk this walk. Be baptized with this baptism. Paul said, Jesus ultimately may deserve co equality with the Father and a position called the second person of the Trinity. That's fine, but don't get lost in esoteric theology and miss the reality. Jesus is the firstborn brother of all of us. And if he is the firstborn brother, that means Jesus and I. The only thing Jesus has up on me is time. He was firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And if Jesus is my brother, then I share parentage with Jesus. And if I share parentage with Jesus, I share genetics with Jesus, I share substance with Jesus. No wonder the writer of Hebrews majestically said, one day Jesus will take us into the presence of the Father, and Jesus literally will stand before God, and all of us will be with him, and Jesus will say, these are your children that you gave me. And then instead of moving into similitude with the eternal one, the Bible says that Jesus will say, these are the children that you gave me, and he will move near us, wrap us up, and he will look to God and say, these are the children you gave me, of whom I am not ashamed to call brothers and sisters. Can you be called the sister of Jesus? Can you be called the brother of Jesus? Jesus said, by the time it's over, he will be able to say, these are mine and I am theirs. And then the Bible says that Jesus will take all of us and he will say to us, Revelation 3, to whoever overcomes, to whoever overcomes, even as I also overcame. Listen to that. To whoever overcomes, how did we overcome? Even as I also overcame. You overcame the way I overcame. And to whoever overcomes as I overcame, Revelation 3 said, he said, I will cause them to sit down in the throne with me even as I also overcame and am set down in the throne with my Father. He will not move back into the throne until he can take us with him. 
But the journey to the throne is not this out there eschatological long-term idea of one day Jesus will put us in the throne. The journey to the throne is the Lenten journey. The journey to the throne is the journey to the cross. It is the journey into the very heart of God through the life of Jesus. And the Christian church has found it easier these first 2,000 years to go ahead and put Jesus in the throne and worship around it. We have found it easier to make that throne a throne of worship replete with jewels and platinum and gold because it's easier to build a statue to people like Rosa Parks and Gandhi and Mandela and King than to admit that we are not called to build them statues and venerate them. We are called to live their life. But it is far easier to build them statues than to overcome as they also overcame. Jesus' life is a life into the throne, into the very heart of God, but it is a journey that He refuses to take sans us. It is a journey that He will only take with us. And the old mystics and sage called this divinization. You want to talk about the divinity of Christ? You can, but the sages said, don't talk about it without talking about yours because you are made of the same substance. And Jesus came into this world, and the first 2,000 years of the Christian church, we have majored on the fact that when Jesus came into this world, He was showing us who God was. But I think an even deeper reality of Jesus, while that one is true, I think an even deeper reality of Jesus is that when Jesus came into this world, He was showing us something scarier than who God was. He was showing us who we are. And people like Jesus are scary to us. We don't know what to do with them when they get at our feet and start washing in between our toes. We don't know what to do with them when they subject themselves to us, Gail, and say, baptize me. Like John the Baptist, we say, oh, no, no. We couldn't baptize you. And Jesus said, yes, you can. Like Peter, we pull our feet away and we say, no, 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 you don't wash our feet. Because it's easier to wash their feet. It's easier to venerate them. But Jesus says, if I don't wash your feet, you don't have part with me. So we put our feet in his hand, and after he washes and cleans between our dirty toes, he looks at us, and he reveals what we were scared of all along. He says, now you go and do likewise. And we knew that was coming. And we have found it easier to worship him as God than to follow him as man.
And I indeed agree with the creeds that he was both. But don't lose the Lenten journey to the throne by preemptively putting Jesus on it and singing a few songs to him. That is not the baptism of Jesus. That is not the call of Jesus. And that is not the life of Jesus. So thank God for moments like our Lenten journey where we can stop and we can reflect and we can sort through all of the heaviness and the complexity and we can hear the Apostle Paul say, who has removed you from the simplicity which is in Christ? One of these days, and I close with this, Matthew 25 said that he is going to stand. Matthew 25 gives us two pictures of judgment. In the first picture of judgment, it is a story of actualization. God gave gifts and talents to people, and those people were to return to the judge, and they were to return with those things manifest, manifold, and multiplied. And in that first picture of judgment, the Lord of the house looks at those who have returned to him and to the ones who have been found worthy, who actualized their life, who tapped into the substance of the kingdom within and multiplied their life and made use of their life. It's interesting, in that particular moment, the judge of all looks at them and says those famous words, well done. It is fascinating to me in a Christian church so lost in esoteric ideas and doctrine that we have missed the fact that he did not say well-believed or well-thought or well-learned or well-read. He said well-done. And the next picture of judgment is a picture where Jesus says, I was hungry, I was thirsty, I was stranger, I was naked, I was a prisoner. And we literally marvel because we never truly understood it. And so much of our faith has been about understanding things that we even look at him and say, when did we see you like this? Because we can't possibly see God fleshly. And yet Jesus moves us beyond this esoteric second person, the Trinity, and he actually says, if I were representing God, then they are representing me. For as much as you've done it unto the least of these, you are doing it unto me. Well done. You did good. You followed me into my life. And as I overcame, what did you overcome, Jesus? Sickness, hunger, loneliness, sadness, estrangement. I overcame the pain of this world, and as I did it, you also can. So, is Jesus exceptional? I will nod toward the creeds and say yes. But I think the call of the church is not to reflect and worship his grand exceptionality or exceptionalness. I think the call of the church is to understand the gracious rule of his life and to be called into it. And as we begin this Lenten season toward Easter and baptism, perhaps you've already been baptized by water, but I ask you again the central question, can you be baptized with the baptism of Jesus? Can you take on this life? Can you overcome as he has overcome? If so, you're headed to the throne, the place he will not go without you. Can you say amen?